Welcome to the American Grown Podcast, hosted by Austin Sullivan. The American Grown Podcast will focus on people from different walks of life and their journey to where they are now. Now, turn up your volume and settle in for a great episode. Hi, I'm Austin Sullivan, and I'm your host for the American Grown Podcast, recorded inside the ColorTech Creative Solutions Studios. Today, we have Wilbur Wolf, owner and Sawyer of Wolf Creek Live Edge. He is a retired Army general officer who now runs a chainsaw, making massive live edge wood projects and man glitter. Wilbur, welcome to episode 18 of the American Grown Podcast. Hey, Austin, thanks for having me out and uh, really appreciate uh, the little reference to the man glitter. I think uh, hopefully that will ring true for some folks that know about it and maybe intrigue some who don't. Exactly. It's a, I, it definitely intrigued me and I did some research and you had put it out that it's the, the, the sawdust because it gets up in your beard and everything. And for the listeners, uh, Wilbur is a, I would say, a mountain of a man, all respect. <laughs> beard grizzly beard and it's uh, your phenomenal guy big hands uh, my father's just here and got to meet you and uh, shook your hands and, and you're you're a big guy big stature but you seem very kind it's our first time meeting we met through uh lou fabrizi did an introduction uh he was on uh, the podcast episode 12 and uh, he said you guys got to connect so here we are that's fantastic i'm looking forward to it. and lou's an awesome guy yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. Very creative and, and uh, has his hands in a little bit of everything, uh, whether it's music and uh, and bourbon. He brought some bourbon for me. That was phenomenal. So, Wilbur, let's let's start, take it back to your youth. What was your childhood like? Where'd you grow up? All right, sure. Well, just starting things way back, I was born in a place called Neubruck in Germany. You know, back when Germany was a divided country, my, uh, my dad was an army officer, uh, deployed to Germany for the beginning of the Berlin crisis. And about uh, six months later, my mother joined him there. And about six months after that, uh, no, I guess more like uh, 10 months after that, right. I was born uh, in Germany. Uh, and then, but I was raised in South Central Pennsylvania, uh, a little bit west of Carlisle. I grew up on a family farm there, uh, about 10 miles west of Carlisle. So beef cattle farm in the country, rural growing up. Um, you know, I think uh, many folks can relate to that existence, mm-hmm. uh, but also very foreign for some others. So it was very, uh, you know, very, very rural, traditional Pennsylvania Dutch-ish farm growing up. Yeah. We were talking before we press record, and my grandfather, 84 years old, and he has a very uh, Pennsylvania Dutch accent. Uh, and he would go out and, and sell, and clients would say, where are you from? And he's born and raised in PA, but it's that it's that accent that... You know, when you go into Philadelphia in these bigger cities, it stands out a little bit. Yeah, I, as, as I'm sure you're aware, I've mm-hmm. had the chance to you know travel around the country and around the world quite a bit. And I didn't grow up knowing that I had an accent. Uh, I learned that I had an accent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah pe- people start to tell you. Then what was it like? I imagine when you moved here, you were very young probably when you moved from, from Germany. But then in, in going to school, going to high school and, and things like that, were you an athlete? What did you do? And I, I know this is going back a little ways, but uh, 
I always like to get the backstory complete of everybody I interview. Sure. So, of course, growing up on a farm, there were a lot of obligations for doing farm things, but uh, my folks also thought it was important we had a chance to take some time time away from the farm. So I was a, I was a three-sport athlete in high school. I ran cross-country in the fall. I was, I was a little bigger than your normal cross-country runner. Uh, I wrestled in the winter and played baseball in the spring and ultimately did uh, well enough wrestling that uh, had some, you know, got division one offers to go you know, con- continue competing yeah you know, uh, in college oh that's phenomenal and no football though no football because i would i would have pegged you for a football player a linebacker of some kind or something yeah. um but so wrestling was big for you what was that like and what did you learn from that sport that now carries over into your or carried over into your your life well i think from my perspective you know, re- wrestling really is it's the ultimate individual and team sport combined mm-hmm. because when you're wrestling it's it's simply it's a it's a mono a mono you know now now you know ladies are also wrestling but at that point it was pretty much uh, just just males mm-hmm. but it's one wrestler against one wrestler and there's nobody else there to come to rescue you there's nobody to come to help you you know how you do there is based on how hard you worked and how well you prepared up to that moment Yet you're just one part still of a team. You know, one individual wrestler wrestling as part of an eight, ten, eleven, whatever, whatever the team structure happens to be. You know, and everybody has to do their part for the team to do well. You know, an individual can shine and the team can fail, and that's not necessarily outstanding. Uh, you know, but uh, an individual can fail yet still do enough to support the team, and the team wins. And I think those are those are some incredibly important uh, things to have learned there. And then the other side of I don't did are you familiar with wrestling or did you uh, wrestle? I, I did not personally. Um, I was a football and track. I was a thrower, shot put and discus, and uh, I had my ninth grade football coach uh, Steve Lebo. He was on an early episode of the podcast. He wanted me to go out for wrestling, and uh, looking back, I wish I would have. I wish I would have done it. Um, I don't know how I would have done with having to cut weight and things like that. I think at that time that was in my head. Um, being, I was always a bigger guy uh, in high in high school. You know, about six two. Um, my gosh, back then two forty. I'd love to be that right now. You know, um, yeah. but no, I did not. I did not. Yeah. I yeah. wish I would have. Yeah. Well, I think the the one thing that. Uh, common to only a few sports and i would say like you know wrestling and gymnastics are, okay. are the two most common is the combination of the training for the athletic endeavor and the weight loss you know so those are you know very very typical you know and by by way of example you know i i won the state championship here in pennsylvania at 167 pounds when i was a senior in high school and then i went to college uh grew about 20 pounds in that year and ended up having to wrestle 158 pounds my freshman year of college, Ooh. you know. And this was this was before we learned, I think, in in the sport, you know, mm-hmm. writ large, before we learned some very critical lessons about uh, you know weight weight loss, weight management, you know, and how uh, how that can affect not just uh, your body and mind right then, but long term effects of uh, you know of poor poor weight loss, poor weight management. But so ultimately you know, in college, I ended, I went, I started at 158 pounder, uh, wrestled 167 pounds my sophomore year. And then my last two years, I was 190 pounder, you know, so I, I'd come into the season at about 220, mm-hmm. you know, and then, you know, lose down to 190, you know, which it, you know, at that point wasn't a, wasn't a terrible weight loss, but it, but allowed me then to be much healthier, more energetic, and less hurt okay, throughout yeah. the seasons. Oh, that's that's crucial. Yeah. Um, you know, like you said, 
the condition of, of your body and keeping it healthy for then for that that moment but then also for for the future you know um so what college did you go to i went to west virginia university WVU. okay i saw that on your hat yeah uh, i saw yep, the, exactly yeah. okay. down the mountaineers wow perfect and what what did your uh what did your family think of you going to, to college um are you the first from your family to go I, I am not. I'm a, on my father's side of the family. I'm a second generation college attendee. Um, my mother's side of the family, you know, had uh, been going to college pretty much since there were colleges in the United States. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so my mother and father are both graduates of Penn State. Uh, oh, uh, so, so so why? How? How? <laughs> why not Penn State? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting story. So I, when I was Finishing high school, there were three things involved with my decision on where I was going to go to college. So wrestling was one of those. Uh, I thought that kind of needed to be at the top of the list. Some other folks disagreed with that mm-hmm. being the primary. So wrestling, uh, I already had at that point an, R- an Army ROTC scholarship, okay. you know, a nationally awarded ROTC scholarship, and I wanted to study forestry, you know, the same as my father did. So it came down to uh, Penn State which had all three of those. Right. Virginia Tech, which had all three of those, and WVU. Uh, yeah. So th- those three were the primaries. I had, uh, I had uh, you know, toyed with, I get recruited out in Michigan, both Michigan and Michigan State and, and a couple other places, but it really came down to those three. And it, it's funny to me now to think back on how that actually played out, but my dad was a practicing forester at that point, and he was he was mad at the Pennsylvania at the Penn State Forestry School because he thought they were being too progressive. So uh, he he kind of uh, he kind of waved off on the Penn State Forestry program. Hmm. I, in terms of you know when we went for visits, I just really liked all three of those components at WVU: the wrestling coach, uh, the ROTC program. Uh, and the forestry school, uh, all all three matched up. So so I went down south of the Mason Dixon and yeah. went, went to West Virginia, and you know we diversified the family portfolio of colleges. That's awesome. Sounds like it was a great fit for all everything you needed at that time. Yeah, I, I think like like many places, you're probably somewhat familiar with the reputation of WVU. Yes. Uh, it in one ways i think i think it's an accurate reflection of they have more Rhodes scholars than just about any other institution but they also made the the top 1 2 or 3 party school right. in the united states for many many years my feeling was just about like anywhere else you get out of it to what you put into it i got a tremendous amount out of West Virginia, out of out of all three aspects of going to school, I had a wonderful career. Uh, you know, as a Division One wrestler, there, I got uh, a regular Army commission. Uh, I got to go to flight school, oh, wow. coming out of the ROTC program, and I got a forestry degree that I never used in my life, but I learned a ton doing it. And mm-hmm. now, you know, forty some years later, uh, I'm playing with man glitter. <laughs> exactly, it translated pretty well. Yeah. Uh, so now, while you're at college, any mentors, and even in life, were there any mentors, anyone you want to shout out in particular that helped you along your your journey? All kinds of mentors. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give a couple of quick shout outs. Certainly to my father, who was you know was a huge mentor on many of those things I just talked about. He wasn't a wrestler; he was a baseball player. You know, up through uh, through you know later in life, uh, he was a practicing forester, and he also served as an army officer and as an army aviator. And I got to do all of those things. So, you know, very much a mentor along those ways. I think back, uh, you know, to my mother being one who grounded me in a lot of other social skills and things that 
that you know hopefully uh, the old man you know rest in peace you know wouldn't mm-hmm. think too badly about but you know he was not necessarily the one with the social graces but my mother was so ultimately I learned some of those things that became important probably much like you you said you had uh, one of your your high school coaches on early mm-hmm. particularly my cross country coaches and my wrestling coaches in high school and then my wrestling coaches in at West Virginia and then you know later when I wrestled for the army you know wrestling coaches uh, for the army as well all served as as great mentors along that and that's you know that's not including the whole army domain which is you know yeah. 31 and a half years of you know fun around the world and back so 31 and a half years in the military between active duty um and national guard yeah can i ask where 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 did you go where were you stationed um you know cuz you said you got to see the world i imagine yeah. you're all over yeah so coming out of coming out of college, uh, my first duty station was Fort Rucker, Alabama, where I went to the Army's uh, flight school. It was Army Officer Basic, and then uh, to flight school, I went to the rotary wing course, and then straight into the fixed wing course, which is very unusual for the Army. It's a very small percentage of Army aviators fly airplanes, uh, but I got to fly both. From there, we got married right at the end of flight school. And so my wife, Amy, and I... Oh, you met her in the Army? Is that... No, no, oh, no. no. Okay. Met, met her in Morgantown. Oh, okay. Uh, met okay. her in Morgantown at a laundromat where I very, uh, very coolly asked her how to use a half-open, half-empty box of Clorox, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so... Perfect. It was very smooth, smooth. with me. Yeah, very smooth. <laughs> that was about my level of grace at that point. Yeah. Thank goodness, well, you know, she... Uh, it worked. She maybe saw something that was worthy of responding to. Yeah. And uh, yeah. 36 years later we just had our 36th anniversary congrats that's awesome Uh, so uh but yeah met in morgantown and then uh a a while later uh she she moved down we got married and then so we went to berlin so how old are you austin i'm gonna be 31 in october 31 yeah so you were not yet born when the berlin wall fell no yeah on the 9th of november of 1989 Okay, a little you, before me. You, just don't a little remember, bit. you don't remember that, but you've probably seen pictures. Yes. So, so we deployed to Berlin, my first active duty station. I was flying three different aircraft there. I was flying uh, UH-1 Hueys. The Hueys that I was flying were all tail-numbered 66, 67, 68, or 69, which means they were Vietnam-era wow. Hueys. I was the only, when I first arrived, I was the only non-Vietnam veteran uh, aviator in the unit. So they were all Vietnam combat veterans. So I was flying the Huey. I was flying a C-12, C-12 on Army Beach uh, Super King Air. And then I was flying something known to the Army as a UV-20. It's a Pilatus Porter, single engine, high wing, tail dragger. Uh, are, you, are you a Vietnam movie watcher? I've, I've seen a couple. Uh, my, my, it would be my uncle, yeah, on my, my father's side, was a service member you know, in, in Vietnam. Now, of course... Uh, due to you know his his time there, he's not all there, uh, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, we you know appreciate his service, so I know a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. And then of course my grandfather on my mother's side was not in the service, but he had a, a single engine, um, you know, a, a prop uh, airplane that that my gosh, I was so little, I would get to ride along. You know, now looking back, I wish that maybe I would have got into to flying, but that's beside yeah. the point anyway. Yeah. So so this UV-20 Pilatus Porter, I, I, I asked that question. Some people who watch a lot of Vietnam movies will have watched the movie and be familiar with Air America. So Air America, of course, was the CIA in Vietnam. One of the aircraft they flew was this Pilatus Porter. So we had two of those in Berlin, and we did, uh, I guess I'll appropriately classify it as strategic intelligence collection 
using this aircraft. And uh, it was a, a phenomenal experience for then, you know, a relatively young lieutenant to be turned loose, a uh, single pilot with a couple even younger kids in the back of the aircraft and fly across the wall. Yeah. Wow. So, and how old, how old roughly were you? So I would have been, uh, so 1989, I was 26. Okay. And, so, and the guys with you, probably early 20s. Yeah, or young, younger than that. Teens. Yeah, every once in a while we'd have an old crusty one who would get in the back. Yeah. But, uh, but it was phenomenal. So, so, of course, we were there for a little bit over two years while the wall was still up. Uh, we were there for the 9th of November, 1989, when the wall fell. And then we redeployed back to the United States uh, in August of the following year, the, the day that Saddam invaded Kuwait. But the, the, of, of uh, particular note, uh, my wife Amy, have you, you know what Brandenburg Gate is? Does that turn, place ring a bell? It doesn't. I'm so, sorry, so Brandenburg yeah. Gate is the uh, is the quintessential dividing point between East and West Berlin. Oh, okay. So okay. you've heard of Checkpoint Charlie as mm-hmm. being the, the checkpoint. Well, Brandenburg Gate is is the the big old uh, 1800s adorned, you know, horse-drawn carriage adorned gate uh, that okay. separated East and West Berlin. So Unter den Linden was the, the street that goes downtown West Berlin to downtown East Berlin, and it passes through Brandenburg Gate. So that's where the, the big celebrations were, the night of the 9th of November when they first uh, uh, basically announced that they weren't going to shoot you if you're trying to cross. Uh, well, that's good. Yeah. Cross. So Amy wow. was there on Brandenburg Gate uh, that night, and yeah. I had a chance to fly a very early morning the next mission. I flew the first flight across what was then we classify as Free East Germany, Free East Berlin. So it was a pretty cool existence. That's part of history. It, it, for sure. Incredible opportunity to yeah. be there and be part of, really, I mean, it was world-changing for us. You know, everything prior to that was the United States and the Soviet Union. It was uh, the Warsaw Pact mm-hmm. and NATO. It was freedom you know, versus oppression. It right. was uh, democracy versus communism. Stuff. It was all those things. And then on the, the morning of the 10th of November, like, well, that's all different now. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, the sunrise, it, it was a very gray day, but, you know, mm-hmm. the sun coming up on the 10th of November 1989 was very, very different. I think we all felt, uh, we felt the weight of then, you know, the the possibility of going to war with the Soviet Union had been greatly lifted. You know, the possibility of, uh, you know, global thermonuclear war you know, mm-hmm. had been greatly mitigated. You know, it, uh, you know, it's not like we haven't had our share of conflicts since yeah. then, but it was uh, it was nothing like that, uh, you know, World War III on a North German plane around Fulda that we kind of thought it could be. We were all very, very thankful you for Take that. a deep breath, kind of weight off uh, everyone's shoulders. Yeah. 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 And I was going to say, it, it's funny. So you, somewhere along the line, you know, many of Lou's... Uh, lose teammates uh, on the in the National Guard or warrant officers, and this will ring true. Some of them will probably listen to this. The only reason that Lieutenant Wolf got to fly that mission is because the warrant officer had something that we term as WOPA, or Warrant Officer Protective Association, OPD, Officer Professional Development, the night before. We'd, we'd been on a tight string for about three months, and everybody was tired, so the OPD, Officer Professional Development, was getting drunk on the Kafirstendam. <sighs> So yeah. L- Lieutenant Wolf was the only sober UV-20 pilot who yeah. was qualified to fly that mission the next oh, month. Otherwise, great. otherwise I'd have been I'd have been yeah. way down the pecking order in wow. terms of experience. That's awesome though, that that opportunity a little yeah. bit of, a little bit of luck, you yep. know, a little bit of luck. Yep. Oh wow, yeah. very cool. And as your time in the military, 
What leadership skills did you learn? I think probably the greatest thing that I learned ultimately, and this didn't happen right away, uh, is that I needed to be able to diversify what I knew and diversify my teammates. So probably much like many folks growing up, I mean, I grew up and I began to, well, I had the chance to form teams. I formed teams that were mostly like me. You know, people, not necessarily all who looked like me, but who had common experiences and common backgrounds, thought like I did, Mm -hmm. had the same attitudes and aptitudes in many cases. And that was really awesome as long as we were facing problems that we knew about. The problem was, you know, and I learned this particularly on the Army side, is, uh, and I'll use Berlin as an example. You yeah. know, I, I grew up in the country. You can take me pretty much anywhere in the country, in the woods, in the mountains, and I'm completely comfortable. Day, night, good weather, bad weather, uh, uphill, downhill, uphill both ways, whatever yeah. it happens to be. And I'm, com- I'm completely at ease, you know, on the ground or flying. But we were operating in a city. And I was uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable in that city. So what I realized, and this is a, you know, this is a very acute example, but if I diversified the knowledge, skills, experience, perspectives, and perceptions on my team with some kids who grew up in the city, well, then we could operate inside the city. We could operate outside the city. And we had some level of confidence that whatever the problem set was we were going to face, we had somebody who was going to know a little bit of something about that and could share that with the rest of the team. And if I happen to be the one in decision-making, I can lean on that person for a little bit of that problem set and this person for a little bit of that problem set. And, and we had a much more resilient organization and we had a much greater ability to address complex problems because somewhere on the team, somebody knew something about that. The other piece I learned to that, though, is it, mm-hmm. it mattered not one stitch how diversified our team was if the leader wasn't willing to listen. So if I wasn't willing to listen to what somebody else had as input and consider it and actually factor that into the decision-making, then all that diversity didn't matter at all. So right. I think it, it across 31 and a half years, and that took a while for that, that to sink in because, mm-hmm. you know, I was a little headstrong and kind of sure that I knew just about everything uh, right. fairly early on. Um, but those were some incredibly important lessons. And, you know, and I think that that crosses over military life, civilian life, uh, uh, civilian work, family pretty much everything that that ability uh, to diversify and use that diverse input the, the most important thing that I learned along the way okay I would totally agree um, for an example in uh, my line of work you know owning a family business my father owning it um, you know we're always looking for like you said diversification people with different backgrounds different viewpoints because if you get everyone that's uh, similar sure it might be uh, easier because everyone will agree with you but then at the same time you don't have different outlooks on life and different inputs coming in you know and sometimes it it can be tough to admit but it's good to to be questioned um, because that's how you learn and grow I think especially as a team you know whether it's whether it's in the military or uh, a business you know you are a team working together to achieve a goal absolutely yeah Yeah. well perfect so wilbur um to kind of transfer over what are you really passionate about you mean besides wood stuff (laughs) besides what's on the table here besides wood oh gosh yeah (laughs) yeah i would say it's a you know it's a a bit a little bit of an eclectic mix of things but on uh obviously 
passionate about my family, you know, uh, doing doing the right thing uh, for and with them, you know, the organic nucleus of the family and then the extended family. But but beyond that, you know, I wore the you know I wore the army hat in here and I got that West Virginia yeah. you know, golf uh, pin on there. I'm, I'm passionate about both of those uh, both of those entities. You know, beyond the army, I'm pretty passionate about uh, service to country. You know, recognizing that not everybody is cut out for or suited for you know uniform service to country, but I think it's uh, an important thing for everybody to find a way to serve the country or serve the community. And at the the very very base or root level of all that, I'm passionate about indivisible responsibility and accountability, oh, wow, which yeah. I think is, uh, I think is at the root of many of the challenges that we have, uh, in the, the United States of America right now. Mm-hmm. So that lack of, and, and I, and in many ways, I don't, I don't fault the generation before me, my generation, the generations that have followed me, you know, some folks maybe just didn't have the greatest example. I happen to have had some wonderful examples in family, uh, in community, in volunteer organizations, civilian work, and the military who really stressed that, that, that aspect of individual responsibility and accountability. And I think if we had that much more broad, broadly applied and widespread as a mindset, I think we we wouldn't have many of the same problems that we face today. I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's funny you bring that up because that's what I I totally believe that. And looking at the country and the state it's in and where we're going as a country, it's kind of scary, you know, being a, a new dad. Just uh, my wife and I just had a baby girl, and I think it is a lot of uh, uh, who, who you know your mentors are, father figure, mother figure in the household, and then like you said, taking that responsibility. Uh, and also a little a little bit of uh, maybe common sense. I don't know how common common sense is anymore, but those things I think intertwine very well. It's taking pride. Uh, so one of the things we do here at ColorTech, we have a photo studio, Blue Cardinal Photography, and we go to local uh, high schools here throughout Lebanon County. And I always you know, tell the football team, track and field team, doesn't matter what the team is, guys or girls, I'll say, look, when you put that jersey on, uh, you represent not only yourself, but the school, and more importantly, your family. So you should take pride, handle yourself you know, even if you're not having a great day, you want to handle yourself as if you're having the best day ever, put a good foot forward. Some days it can be hard because people are looking at you, not only with your jersey, but if they know you, they know your family and uh, you want to represent yourself in the best light. So I totally agree with you. I totally agree. Same page. So now to get into the meat meat and potatoes of it, you brought some phenomenal wood here. You got a big, uh, I don't even know, a chainsaw. I don't know the proper term you were talking about earlier. Yeah, it, it's a chainsaw at heart. You're talking about you know getting to the meat and potato thing. So, what's sitting over there against the wall is the is the rig that I mill probably sixty percent of the wood with. So wow. in in about two and a half years, we've milled. We're almost ready to cross over ten thousand pieces. We're, we're just 10, just about to hit ten thousand pieces. So that rig uh, we've done about sixty percent of the milling with. Uh, the, I'll break it down into the parts. Okay. So, yeah. so on the right-hand side, as you're looking at it, is the power head. That's okay. what people traditionally call a chainsaw. You know, it, that's the power head for the chainsaw. That thing is a it's a Husqvarna 3120, uh, which is the largest chainsaw that Husqvarna makes. For the steel lovers out there, it's the pure equivalent of an 880 or an 088. Uh, this is 119 cc's, so it's like a it's like a small motorcycle engine yeah. uh, that you strap a chain and a bar to, <laughs> and cut wood. Uh, What's can, the weight roughly? 
you know, I don't, I don't know what the total weight it is. It might be 30 pounds or something like that. All right, I want to try to pick it up later for the picture because yeah. you brought it down. But continue. Yeah. continue yeah. So, so the rest of the components, uh, it has, uh, has a chainsaw bar like most, well, all chainsaws that actually cut wood mm-hmm. have a bar. And then it has chain and the big, the bracket you see mounted to it. And they, I think the, the viewers can probably maybe see that in one of the pictures that yes. you took. Yep. Uh, that's known as a, a, an Alaskan mill. And in this case, it's a Granberg Alaskan mill. Granberg is a wonderful old, uh, family owned small business in, uh, Northwest, uh, United States. They make the best, uh, Alaskan mills. The chain that's on the bar is a uh, custom made chain by Granberg as well. And they sell a bunch of other things, uh, implements, but that's, that's the basic, uh, that's the basic kit that okay. we use to mill, uh, in, in our, in our suite of tools, we have one mill that's smaller than this. Mm-hmm. It's known as, an, as a Granberg Alaskan small log mill. And then we have uh, two that are larger than this. So this is a 36 inch mill with 42 inch bar. The next step up is a 60 inch mill with 64 inch bar. And then there's an 84 inch mill wow. with 84 inch bar. So seven foot long those bar. Are, that's a two man operation. Nah, that's a one man operation. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, not necessarily everybody can, can do for, that, but I, w- I will say that yeah. probably half of the time that I'm using that mill, mm-hmm. I have somebody else there. Not because the saw has to be a two-man operation, but because what we mill with that becomes at least a two-person lift. You know, okay. by, by way of example, the, the last really big piece that we cut with this was about a, about a month and a half ago, uh, was a stump slice from a Norway maple tree over in Shireman's Town. Okay. You, you may have seen... I think I saw it on your Facebook page. I, I termed it the beast. Yes, yeah, I saw that. So, so the beast was about seven and a half feet in one dimension, nine and a half feet in the other dimension, wow. and five inches thick. So yeah. while I could make that cut by myself uh, with this rig, uh, I couldn't move the piece by myself. The, the piece, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't yeah. have a way to weigh it, but I did... Uh, you know, uh, I did the mass of wood times the weight of, you know, a cubic mm-hmm. foot of that wood and came. So it would have been somewhere around 1,700 pounds. Wow. And so a little little Holy bit under cow. a ton for that piece yeah. of wood. So I, I, I tried the first, day, the first day that I was, I had finished the cut myself. Okay. Uh, it was by myself. So I tried to lift the thing up and I got it, I got it about uh, two feet up off the ground so I could get some blocks underneath it, right. you know, lifting and kicking a, mm-hmm. kicking a block underneath it by myself. But I couldn't, I couldn't get it stood up the whole way. So young son, as you've seen uh, in, in some of the, yeah. you know, some of the, okay, your son. AKA yeah. Sawyer number two. Perfect. Uh, uh, he has their, their daughter, which will be their second, uh, is is due any day. So, oh wow! So they're they're number two. So he came out the next day, and you know he he made it seem very easy, you know, for <laughs> yeah. us for us to get that thing lifted up, get the beast lifted up. So right. so that's uh, that was the the eighty four inch one. Well, congrats to your son because this will come out uh, right around December. So congrats on on the baby. And uh, so now, what uh, a, a piece of wood that size? What did you do with that? Did you cut it into smaller pieces or was that a grand table the reason i ask is uh part of my job i go out and sell Mm -hmm. and uh, i go into these conference rooms and it used to be like granite marble tables in these conference rooms i'm seeing a lot of like the live edge edge, huge huge tables Yeah. yeah so so my answer is uh 
I think I would rather be, you know, shot in the temple than cut something like that into smaller okay. pieces. Okay, all right. So, I mean, that, that seven and a half by nine and a half foot thing needs to be a tabletop. I don't make the tabletops. So we, we do the Sawyer work. We mill live edge, whether it's end grain cut or cross grain cut live edge. And then we dry it okay. and we sell it to people uh, uh, who want to buy it and do that finished work. So, you know, I brought along some of these examples and this is, the examples you see here are probably 50% of the pieces that I've ever taken the time to plane and sand. You know, I, I like making smaller pieces out of really big uh, logs, uh, putting them on drying stacks and letting them dry, and then somebody else can take the time to do that finish work. And it's, you know, from, from a business perspective, what I've found that, you know, by way of example, I, I, I took, uh, you know, two or three hours today to, you know, plane and sand a couple of these pieces to bring them out. But in the time that it took me to do that, I could have made 30 or 40 pieces of live edge. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So back to the example of the beast, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that monster piece. Uh, young son and I combined probably had, I don't know, maybe six man hours to get that thing cut, you wow. know that that that's yeah. that's on the extreme end. Mm-hmm. You know, normally it's normally I'm invested somewhere around twenty to twenty five, maybe thirty minutes total per piece. That includes you know travel to, you know prepping the log, making the cut, loading it, offloading it, stacking it. You know, so I'll be into it for a half hour, say. Uh, but on that big one, six hours. I can envision somebody else taking two or three hundred hours. Yeah. to finish that piece wow so i like i like uh, the end of the business we do i get to see and do a lot more things mm-hmm. you know cut all kinds of different wood and really the only stuff that i finish is you know for family and friends uh and and samples so most of what you see here are, are samples uh, so when we have people come over to buy wood gray dried wood in an open air drying stack doesn't look like people envision their spectacular dining room table right so we right. have samples to show what the various woods look like yeah you know and I brought along a, a number of those that uh, we can take a look at and you know give you some examples of you know what we look for in wood you know and how we mill wood for the listeners out there all the photos will be uh, up online on our facebook page and also instagram but let's give the listeners a little bit of background because we're getting right into it um how did wolf creek live edge come about Okay, so the Wolf Creek end of it is a continuation of Wolf Creek Associates Consulting that I started back in 2005. So that was my first first consulting company before we started Aquila Strategy and Operations Group. So just came up with uh, you know Wolf, and we happened to live along a creek, so uh, let's just call Perfect. it Wolf Creek. And uh, on the associates consulting side, knew we were going to do consulting, and well, associates sounds more important than you know just Wolf Creek Consulting. So right. it sounds like there's a bunch of us. Yeah. <laughs> so it was Wolf Creek Associates I like Consulting. It. So then when I started doing the you know the wood milling stuff, and I I I said in in the the uh, the preamble, you know, since January of of 2020. But we really didn't decide to do this as a business probably till about a year later. So then we talked about uh, talked about ways to name this, you know, things we could name it that would be uh, a little bit, at least a little bit associated with the wood, you know, associated with the name, some family recognition, yes, you know, in some way linked to uh, 
in, in some way linked to, uh, you know, some of the past work that we've done. So, so we settled on uh, Wolf Creek Live Edge. That was, that was not my first choice. Okay, uh, for, what, what was your? <laughs> well, you see, what I wanted to name it was uh, generally good wood. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you know because That's it's a good one. It's a play. Generally. It's a play on uh, a number of things. And right. what I was advised was that when people go to search the web for generally good wood, they might not find me. <laughs> yeah, there could be a lot of things could come <laughs> yeah. up that so uh, reflect. So what you I do. was I was advised by people a lot smarter than I was That's that a, yeah. uh, Wolf Creek Live Edge should be appropriate in terms of having name recognition and association with the product that mm-hmm. we want people to look at and buy. Uh, I'm still going to get generally good wood put on the back of hats and there shirts and stuff. That, but That'll probably yeah. sell pretty well if I, you do, honestly. I, I think so, too. But, yeah. Uh, but I was... Uh, a couple, a couple of my army friends and wrestling friends thought generally good wood was a great idea. Well, if but, you do, if you get a hat yeah. or a beanie, let me know. I'll buy one off you because I need to keep my head warm. And exactly. the winter's coming up. That's exactly. a great idea. That so, could go well. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So now, what would you say your favorite wood is to work with? I know you brought all kinds of different examples, and there's, I know very little, but there's cherry maple, ash, I mean walnut. I, I think I just made a post about that. I get to ask this question all the time. Yeah. Know, what's my favorite wood? And most typically my answer is whatever the wood is I milled last okay. is my favorite. So yeah. the, the last wood that I happened to have milled was some cedar, uh, eastern red cedar. It's it's the only conifer, the only soft wood that we've milled. Haven't done any pine, spruce, fir, hemlock, anything like that. Everything else has been hardwood. So we have, we have in the stable 33 different species of uh of hardwoods okay so hold on in, in the stable what i'm picturing horses and cows and things What's, stable uh stable is a a term not specific to uh to the building but is a general term okay. in the inventory gotcha okay okay in the inventory uh yep. we have 33 different species of, wow. of hardwoods most of them are native pennsylvania hardwoods really it's just uh, uh one one species of mulberry that's not native uh, and Norway maple, of which I have a couple samples there. Uh, everything else is uh, native Pennsylvania hardwoods, except for the eastern red cedar. And I got a specific request for some cookies. So when I say cookies, it's uh, cross grain cut. Uh, you know, the traditional cut, like you would cut a piece of firewood, cutting that way. Okay. You know, cookies, wafers, discs, uh, whatever you want to call, it, or rounds. Uh, I got a request for some of those, so I went out and cut about sixty of those one day. And is that this size here, or no? That's something there, different. It's, it's in there. If we want to, you want me to grab it out and shuffle. Yeah, and well, sure, it sure. Oh. Yeah, yeah. If you don't mind. I don't mind. Because when you, when you mention a cookie, I just picture like this to me is like a cookie size. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. So that's uh, that piece is eastern red cedar. It's uh, not not a super prime uh, example, and it's not you know not well finished. I finished it well enough to be able to uh, to give an example, but it it creates a wonderful example of how wood transforms. So you see what this looks like there. It looks yeah. although it's not really smoothed off and finished. It's kind of cool looking. Mm-hmm. Kind of dull. Kind of yes. plain. So that's a. I think it's a great example of how. Uh, you know how how wood transform. Now pick pick that piece up. Yeah, get a sense of the weight of that. Okay, pretty yep. light. Yeah, pretty light. Yeah. How about pick that piece up that looks a lot smaller? 
Oh wow, I'd say it's got some weight to it. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. what you're looking at in, in these two pieces, mm-hmm. that is the softest wood that we have milled. Okay. This is the hardest wood we've milled. That's eastern red cedar. This is black locust. This stuff, when it dries, is like concrete. I mean, oh, wow. it is. Yeah. Uh, you know that I say you can use it fine for a display board. Uh, the lady who ordered those is going to have four of those to use as ceiling fan mounts. So it's going to go up underneath the ceiling fan. Ceiling fan will mount to that. Whoa. Uh, Never would know, have thought so, of that. Yeah. So, that, yeah. so this, you'll be looking at this on a ceiling. Yeah. Well, that's an awesome idea. Uh, but I say, you know, you can use this as a charcuterie board. You can use it as a display. But it's not good, for example, for a cutting board. You know, because uh, you would you would mark and cut into that. Whereas this, you can just kind of you can just kind of like, you know, tap your fingernails yeah. into that and realize that that That's, is yes. that is hard and it's not even fully dry yet. Uh, wow. When when black locust, we use the term somewhat affectionately, it will spark your tools uh, when you're when you're trying to cut dry black locusts. Holy cow! It's, it's extremely durable. By way of example, when I you know growing up on the farm, you know we would put in uh, locust fence posts. You know, miser- miserable part of life, but wonderful memories. Yeah. You know, digging yeah. digging fence post holes in limestone ground. Oof. You know, setting locust posts, but Locust posts that I set there when I was a kid, so you know, mid seventies, with my dad and with my grandfather, still rock solid. Still there and still still standing. Wow. Still solid. Jeez. You know. Uh, that says know, something. 50, wow. Fifty years later, it's incredibly hard, incredibly durable, and I think it's a, you know it's a greatly overlooked wood. It can be somewhat plain looking, but uh, you know I think it's extraordinary. So long way of answering you. Uh, you know, I put. Eastern red cedar kind of at the top of the list for a little bit till I cut something more cool. Okay, gotcha. But, uh, Understood. But I do really like, uh, I do like maples. Um, <clears throat> not just for the wood, but, but we, uh, you know, we do maple syrup as well, which yeah. is kind of Oh, cool. you do? Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, I grew up on a farm. Our, our farm lane, it's about a third of a mile long, was lined with sugar maple trees. So I grew up, you know, yeah. making maple syrup. I, I wasn't quite so passionate about it then because, you know, as a 10-year-old kid with a five-gallon bucket in each hand walking a third of a mile back in the lane, I didn't think that was cool. Right. N- now I think it's extraordinarily cool. I think it's you know, awesome. It's like I'd pay to go do it now. Yeah. But, uh but I, I do like uh, maples because of the, the diversity and variety of stuff that you get with it. So I brought five pieces of maple okay. along, different species of maple yeah. that I can show you if you want to uh, dig into those. Well, yeah, I mean, we can definitely dig into those. Yeah, for sure. I, the, the other question I wanted to, to get into, I know, so now you don't always see the finished product, you know, because you, you cut the slabs mm-hmm. or, or the piece of wood. What would you say is some of your favorite finished pieces maybe you've been a part of or... or that you've seen in terms of finished pieces right i was gonna say one should be lou fabrizi's guitar well obviously at the top of the list is that awesome spalted ash guitar that lou made probably second on the list will be the one he finishes out of the pecan uh, oh he's doing a second one oh he's doing a maybe i don't know maybe i'm not supposed to let that cat out of the bag I think there's there, there hypothetically there could be a pecan could be guitar in the works uh, in the works We've had some folks make some some awesome uh, from from charcuterie size to some really cool tables. I had a chance uh, just last weekend to go down. I milled a I guess roughly eight inch thick by twelve inch deep by seven and a half foot long uh, white oak mantle. 
Whoa. Uh, for the son of a great friend. The, the, the son is now a great friend, also down in the Westchester area. He just he just uh, had his house opening, had his open house, and the mantle is, is the centerpiece oh, of the house. That's so cool. So, yeah. so some things like that. Okay. It, it's a, you know, it's really cool because, you know, what we were able to mill, because we mill things that are enormous down to, you know, things like this size, uh, we get a chance to... Uh, to have folks make a v- wide variety of different things and say much like what my favorite wood is sometimes it's well it's it's what somebody just did last with our wood okay that, I, that a I'm great most infatuated with and, and for the listeners when you say this size uh it's a small uh, equivalent to maybe a red solo cup right for all yeah, the people somewhere there. in that about yeah, actually about half of a red solo cup correct yes with that yeah. piece specifically um i use as an example of the technique of milling wood and what we're looking for uh, when we're doing milling. So that's sugar maple. I'm sorry, that's Norway maple. That piece is Norway maple. You said maple is one of your favorite woods. Right. Okay. So what I brought along today was in in order of hardness, sugar maple, Norway maple, silver maple, red maple, box elder. So those five, we we do a fair amount of milling out of those. They're relatively, four of those five are relatively commonly available. But when we're doing milling, and am I okay to just wander off into this part of the discussion, well, yeah. or do you well, have actual things you want to ask me? No, no, well, you're, you're good. Please. Okay. This is all, yep, I'm listening. All right, so yeah. you're kind of a wood guy, you know, right. a bit about wood. So some of milling, whether whether you're on a traditional sawmill or using, you know, a chainsaw mill like we do, some of it is purely mechanical. You just, you have to have the saw working right. You have to have the chain sharp. You have to be able to set depths properly. You have to be able to cut straight lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the, the mechanical pieces of making it work. The art to it is being able to walk up to a piece of wood that would be, you know, in a log form like this and saying, okay, how am I going to cut this to get the best effect? So one of those things, uh, you know, looking at the outside of this wood, this uh, this ridged area, mm-hmm. that is an absolute key signature for something that we call curl. It's one of the most common figures in wood. And when you hear of curly maple, sometimes people refer to, you know, curly maple. Well, it's maple with curl. It's not curly maple. Just like they say ambrosia maple. Ambrosia is, is not a species this is ambrosia marks okay. in maple uh not it's not, not not a species so so we we come to we find a log that has this on the outside of it which is curl mm-hmm. which is something that is highly desirable particularly in hard maples norway or sugar but then the question is how do we get the best effect out of wood like this so i'll i'll i'm going to play the little game with you on this okay I'll say, okay, what curl do you see in that face? Oh, my. Uh, Any? I would say no, maybe a slight curl, but again, I don't know exactly what I'm looking for. Okay, even if I, you know, I rotate it a little bit in the light, it's not shining or anything? Not like, not like there. Okay, that's the good answer. Okay. So that's an end grain cut. So that's, that's a cut like this. So, so this piece was in the tree, tree was growing like that. So that's an end grain cut. End grain cut does not expose curl. Ah, okay, I passed so that one. You'll see in, in this opposite end grain cut, every once in a while you'll get just a little bit. You see that that lighter streak yeah. right there? Yep. You'll get just a little bit of uh, the color change of curl, but you won't get any of the iridescence. How about on this profile? Yeah, I would say there's a little bit there. 
Okay, this profile is a way to attack it. So, so if this if this is a log lying like this, the first couple cuts that we make off of it are going to expose this kind of a curl. So, curl is a is a grain formation that starts in the center of the tree and goes to the out. It's not just on the outside. Okay. So, this kind of a flat sawn cut gives you horizontal marks. They're pretty cool, and when they're finished, and you know you get you get the right light on them, they kind of yeah. iridesce or glow. You know, same thing, same thing on this side. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the second way you can cut it. The third way you can cut it. Yeah, now that I see, it's all over. I mean, it's beautiful, and it's it's pops. That's that's the money shot right yeah, there. I would agree. That's that's what we're looking for. So knowing how to position the saw, knowing that you're going to get some of this. And some of this, regardless how you do it, maximizing the surfaces that you have this just phenomenally iridescent. You know, every every way you turn it, the light hits it different. Yeah, and it just it just glows and sparkles. It's weird. It does it. It's like yeah. a shine in the yeah. wood. The yeah, it's it kind of like you know when you you know you're familiar with like the you know triple layer paint on cars and stuff. Depending on which way the light hits it, it can be a different color or it can look sparkly or not sparkly. Exactly. That's what curl does, but curl only does that if you know how to cut it right out of the wood. Wow. So I have a I have a very good friend of mine, a guy named Tommy Warlow, who runs a you know a sawmill. He's a, he's a sawyer down in in Delaware County. He he likes to use the phrase that that's the difference between a sawyer and somebody running a sawmill, or a sawyer and somebody running a chainsaw is is the ability to get that out of the wood instead of that. Instead of that. Wow. So, so it's yeah. kind of complex. So this is this is one of you know four or five different grain formations. You know, this one is I I I use this block as an example when I'm talking to people about how you how you find the right grain out of a piece. Wow, I mean it's it's a, a science, a, a craft. I would it's it's a craftsmanship, like you said. It's not yeah. just somebody in their backyard hacking away cutting cutting wood. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, that's the art to it though. That's, Definitely. Uh, beautiful piece and uh we'll we'll definitely get some pictures in for all the listeners and i wanted to then segue into you started wolf creek live edge right around 2020 how did covid affect you starting this new business really not at all you know i mean i think it uh in january other other than getting covid twice yeah you had uh, it twice yeah i had it twice uh you know fully vaccinated boosted twice with covid it really didn't affect it at all. The only thing that the funny recollection from my perspective, mm-hmm. I know we're, we're going to get into, you know, work we did related to COVID in a little bit, but I was one of the first places we were doing significant milling was in Harrisburg at my old national guard division headquarters. We call it HMP or Harrisburg military post. And the first few times I was driving in there to do some milling work, uh, yeah, it was typical congested Harrisburg and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm kind of, you know, rednecky looking with a big old beat up pickup truck and a, a mountain and man. A trailer, yeah. you know, looking kind of grubby driving through a town. You know, it's a, it's a mixture of, you know, homelessness and suits and ties, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, that I'm driving through, but it's right. busy, it's congested. Yeah. And then COVID happened and uh, it was a ghost town. Big difference. I was still going there to mill because, you know, I'm just milling wood, you know, not like I'm yeah. bothering anybody. Nobody's bothering me. Not spreading covid right uh, i'm just milling wood by myself but i could get there in about half the time but it really it was like a ghost town yeah yeah, yeah. 
Oh, that's so true. Yeah. You're right. I, I remember going into uh, King of Prussia. We have some clients in the Philly area. And, you know, prior to, I think it was the end of March or middle of March, you know, it was stuffed with traffic, cars everywhere in Turnpike. Uh, shortly after that, I go back and it's like a ghost town. You're yeah. 100% right. Yeah. Uh, it was so, you could move it much quicker, get yeah. going where you had to go. Um, so now you yeah. were a part of a team that, from what you put on the form, uh, that put together an emergency uh, preparedness plan for Southeast PA. If you don't mind, uh, sure. let me one, one little bit more on, yeah, on yeah. the effect of COVID, though. Mm-hmm. So, although, you know, for us directly, didn't affect it at all. It gave me, you know, I I just kept on milling. And I, you know, I got bigger saws. I got bigger mills. Yeah. You know, everybody was calling, you know, said, hey, I got a log. You know, and I'd go to their place and mill wood. But across the industry, the, the live-edge industry, it caused an explosion of people uh, milling. So there were a lot of people who were directly affected by COVID, you know, their, their business shut down or, you know, they just didn't want to work in a congested environment. So in, in the big industry, particularly for sawmills, mm-hmm. uh, you couldn't buy a new sawmill uh, on the open market from a, from a dealer because they were backlogged six, 12, 18 wow. months sometimes yeah. uh, to be able to buy a sawmill. You know, God bless the the folks at Granberg. Uh, you know, wonderful company. They're just they're they're phenomenal. Uh, they were on six to eight week backlogs. You know, filling orders. Wow. So a lot of Jeez. people got into it. But now the interesting effect. So a lot of people got into it. You know, some of them you know running a sawmill. Some of them actual sawyers. You know, there was a fair amount of live edge uh, saturation in that market. At the same time, there were a whole lot of people staying home who saw some live edge and thought, well, I got some time on my hands. I want to get me some of that live edge and I'm going to do some work. Yeah. So I think I think in, in the grand scheme of things across the, the entire market, it kind of balanced out. The supply went way up, uh, demand went up, but now a lot of those people who bought those sawmills have gotten tired of their sawmill. Uh, they realized it, it's really is pretty freaking hard work. Yeah. And, and Using one of those things for eight hours is really hard. You gotta work. have some muscle. You gotta have some muscle. Uh, so, yeah. so now I think we're probably gonna get post COVID. We've got a lot of people selling sawmills and a lot of people with uh, a lot of live edge inventory sitting mm. around that's probably gonna get turned into firewood. So oh, that's a shame. Uh, so we're looking at uh, you know continued good opportunity moving forward. Right. I was gonna say good good for those that will stick with it and are in it for the long run. It's interesting because I never would have thought sawmills you know i hear a lot of people because again they were at home so they wanted to fix their living room or their kitchen or all of a sudden they want to get the in-ground pool that they never pulled the trigger on and all of a sudden mm-hmm. they're getting it and there's backlogs but uh i never would have thought for for sawmills yeah it's yeah. very interesting yeah hmm. so anyway so back to the question you asked before that oh, so yeah. so long before all the woods so i mean i've you know i've run a chainsaw pretty much my whole life you know my my dad was a forester I grew up on a farm you know my my the the man toys are a little bigger than yeah. the than the uh the saws I grew up with working on the farm and the travesty that it is you know I use Husqvarna's my dad was a still guy so you know he's probably okay. rolling over in his grave yeah you know with me with the wrong color of orange saw mm-hmm. but so so I did all of did all of that for all of my life but in my professional consulting career after six years with kpmg Mm -hmm. uh that was you know wonderful experience but most of it doing things i really didn't enjoy all that much but phenomenal teams phenomenal experience most of the rest of that time the last 17 years uh in southeast pennsylvania we did uh strategic national stockpile medical countermeasures 
emergency preparedness work. That went into play in 2009, 2010, when we had the H1N1 outbreak to, okay. a, to a much lesser degree. And then many of the plans uh, that we worked very, very closely with Delaware County for a number of years with Chester County and one year with Montgomery County, those plans that we had a chance to work on with teams to do planning, uh, training, exercise, and evaluation were what those teams used in that uh, more than 24-month response to COVID. Wow. So we're extraordinarily proud of uh, you know those teams we got to work with that ability. So now I'll put a little caveat on that. So mm-hmm. have you heard of the SNS program or strategic national stockpile? Yeah. Ring a bell? I, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it, it was something that grew, that grew out of what was originally known as the national pharmaceutical stockpile. So that was a, that was a stockpile of a variety of things, including anti, uh, uh, antitoxins, uh, you know, that was a countermeasure to a Soviet nuclear bio or chem attack okay. uh, yeah. here in the homeland. It evolved uh, in the 80s and 90s into a much more broad uh, program than that. But most of what we worked on was preparedness to respond to something that was known as uh, one of the big five. So anthrax, botulinum, tularemia, plague. So we we did most of our preparedness planning for things like that. And the reason I I give that caveat is that uh, you know that COVID, the response to COVID evolved over weeks, months, years. so we had a long time to to think about and prepare for and do, particularly the dispensing side of it, the actual injection side. Contrast that with anthrax, for example, that we term as a short flash to bang response. Anthrax, we have from the first exposure to anthrax, we have 48 hours, 48 hours wow. to get a dose of antibiotic, prophylactic antibiotic in the mouth of anybody who's exposed to give them a reasonable chance of surviving. 48 hours. 48 hours. That's not a lot of time. No. In my mind. No. No. Yeah. And and contrasting to COVID, you know, it's it, it's been a it's been a a very challenging uh, you know, evolution. You know, a lot of people have died, a lot of people have suffered, but when we compare and contrast that to what we were to, to the worst case scenario we were preparing for, whereas you know, 90, the high 90% of some of people who are exposed to COVID survive. That ratio is inverted for something like anthrax. If we don't get that first dose of, uh, in most cases, doxycycline or ciprofloxacin in the mouth within 48 hours, more than 90% will die. Wow. So completely so, reverse. So completely reverse. But the good news is for, for those awesome teams that we work with, the same mindset for being able to do mass distribution and dispensing of any medical countermeasure allowed them to do the same thing over 24 months that we would have had to do in 48 hours. So the teams, uh, we think, were, were very, just about, about as prepared as they could have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we're, we continue to be extraordinarily proud. Now we're, uh, we're, uh, uh, in we're in the rearview mirror with all that work now. So right. uh, you know we've 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 ramped down. The teams have matured to the point where they're doing all of that work themselves. You know for the last two years that we did, we stayed on for an extra two years during COVID, just to just really to be there uh, to help do a little. 
uh, assist and advise as was needed. But the teams were really ready. They were yeah. they were ready to rock and do it all on their own. So now we're finishing up uh, the last little bit of a COVID after action review uh, for one of our clients, and then that's uh, yeah, I think the, hopefully that's the last of that work that we need to do. Oh yes, for sure. And when you say teams, how many? Uh, like I picture teams of 12 or, or is this teams of hundreds of, of people? It, it depends. So okay. so in, in Delaware County, uh, I'll, I'll give that as an, as an example, roughly uh, 3,500 people to make this program work uh, in, in a full-scale activation. Wow. So uh, we had things that were known as open points of dispensing. We had things known as closed points of dispensing. Uh, and some other mechanisms we added into as a lesson learned. We've added into something known as community points of dispensing. Uh, so all of those things took a lot of people to run. And just by way of example, one of the open points of dispensing would take uh, 75 to 100 people per shift running two 12-hour shifts. So okay. 150 people-ish to run one of those uh, multiplied by the number of closed wow. open pods adding in all the uh, the closed pods, adding in all the command and control structure, the logistics structure, the transportation structure, and all the security. Mm-hmm. It was around 3,500 people uh, to make it work. Holy so cow. over 17 years, we had the opportunity to, to teach, to train, and exercise a lot of those teammates who fortunately never had to do a 48-hour response and knock on some wood. Uh, but who are pretty well prepared to do the long COVID response. What's one takeaway you would say from the whole COVID situation that going forward you could learn from or your teams could learn from or you could use for heaven forbid, like you said, knock on wood, but if it were to happen again? Address that in two ways. One, from an organizational and particularly business perspective, is investing in what we term continuity of operations or continuity of governance. And we use that probably like you've done within the printing business uh, and maybe even doing the studio. uh, We apply, we always try to apply something that's known as the rule of three. So you have a primary capability, you have a backup capability, and you have an alternate capability, or you have a primary supplier for your paper, Yes. uh, a secondary supplier, and an emergency supplier. So all of those things you have you know, you're, I'm assuming you have uh, a couple of key technical positions mm-hmm. in a printing business. Yes. What, what's the name of one of those? Oh, what's like a, what's a, the position? A project manager, director oh. of operations. Okay, so you're director yeah. of operations. So you have your primary director of operations, the one you pay every day to do it. You have somebody who does just enough learning from that project manager or a little bit of shadowing that uh, with a few hesitating steps could step in if the project manager's out for vacation or dies from COVID. And then you have somebody else, maybe completely unrelated to project management, who gets introduced to enough of it, who in an emergency can step in and keep the blood flowing through the organization for long enough to get somebody else in. So rule of three, continuity of operations, continuity of governance, that ability to build uh, resiliency in organizations. I think that was the that was the biggest thing that most of the organ, you know, separate from the county government, most of the private organizations we work with, that was the biggest challenge. And within that, the biggest challenge was, you know, I talked about this, you know, your project manager. One of the challenges was delegations of responsibilities and authorities. I I bet this is a conversation you and your dad have had. At some point, delegating responsibilities to you 
hopefully always coinciding with a delegation of authorities. So the biggest challenge we would see is that organizations think they're doing this continuity preparedness and planning, and they're giving responsibility to successive tiers of the organization, but not the authority to act. All of the authority, the ability to sign the check, for example, the ability to execute a contract, all of those things are still retained with one person. And that then becomes a single point of failure uh, for for the organization. So (laughs) continuity of operations, we're still doing some of that work. Uh, The other thing that I will say is that the ability to invest in preparedness when it seems like you don't need to. This cycle, you know, 22, 21 years plus since 9-11. Right after 9-11, everybody cared about emergency preparedness. Everybody. Yeah. And the federal government uh, invested shit tons of money. Uh, does, that, does that get edited out? Or oh, no, you're right good. You could swear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever you feel. The federal government invested a lot of money. Yeah. The Commonwealth invested a lot of money. Private organizations mm-hmm. invested a lot of money. Everybody cared about emergency preparedness. By 2005, not so much. Pretty much nobody cared anymore, except yeah. you know parts of the federal government. You know, and some of that was just because we built enormous infrastructure in the federal government. And once you build enormous infrastructure, it's kind of hard to take it down. Fast forward, and I say fast forward now to H1N1. So mm-hmm. it was fortunately turned out to be not nearly as contagious, uh, not nearly as infectious, and not nearly as deadly as it could have been, mm-hmm. and not nearly as deadly as some of the others, uh, you know, small ones that hit the radar. But in 2009, 2010, we had this H1N1 response, and it went pretty smoothly. And everybody, not everybody, but a lot of folks thought, well, you see, it's really not all that important. So after H1N1, uh, stockpiles weren't replenished. People were of the mindset, well, that went pretty smoothly. Nothing really bad happened. So for about another 10 years, you know, a few folks were concerned about it for another year or two, but it was off of the radar for a lot of people. Fast forward now to, uh, what was it, January, February, March of 2020, we start to have this thing happening. There were some parts of our uh, government system that had maintained a great level of preparedness. I'm proud of the teams that we work with. They maintain a great level of preparedness because sometimes, you know, kicking and screaming, uh, we collectively, the team, dragged the rest of the team through these redundant training and exercise events. Sometimes I'm saying, uh, really? We've yeah. done this like 20 times before. But as one of the clients, uh, a guy named Ed Klein, wonderful teammate uh, down there in Delaware County, he is, uh, he is somewhat famous for saying that, that the very best will not do it until they can get it right. They'll do it until they can't get it wrong. So that's, that's one of those monikers that that awesome team in Delaware County uh, continues to use some of the other clients we work with. So those two things, continuity of operations and governance, you know, preparing for uh, there to be a significant interruption of you know, supply of your personnel, communications, whatever it happens to be, mm-hmm. and then that willingness to invest in preparedness when it doesn't really seem like you need to. Yeah, that's perfect. And the next one I want to kind of segue into, you being a family man, I just have a baby girl. For the average family, what would you recommend they do? I mean, with all your military experience, your life, you know, what would you recommend they invest in now? Because heaven forbid, if COVID were to come back or something worse, what can they do now to 
kind of prepare even a little bit? Yeah. I, I'd say a couple of things. One, um, you know, we talk about go kits. You know, you, you know, Lou may have talked to you about go kits. You know, when he's talking about being being Apache pilot, but you know, everywhere in the army and everywhere in the emergency preparedness world, you have a go kit that has your minimum essential stuff. And I know this is this is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. You know, for folks, people hear about this stuff all the time. But you know, I like to say have two weeks worth of everything you need. Okay. At hand, because in in the grand scheme of things, the vast majority of our emergencies are over in two weeks. Okay. So have two weeks worth of food, everything water. you need yeah. set aside. You know, cash, money, food, water, medications. You know, toiletries, whatever mm-hmm. you need. And honestly, that that one, it, it's liable to meet the vast majority of your need. You're probably going to have more than you need. You can share with a neighbor or a family member, and you're going to sleep well at night. You no, know, you know. The power, just if something as simple as the power goes out, I know where the flashlights are. I got spare batteries. I have some chow and a can of Sterno that I can light mm-hmm. up. And and we can just, you know, homestead for, for a couple of days. So so that's one thing. Uh, on the, the grander scale of things, you know, it goes back to one of the things we very first talked about, and that was that individual responsibility, accountability, and right. diversity of knowledge, skills, and experience. I think the other big thing that people are going to do is learn how to make and grow things. Know how to grow a little bit of your own chow. You probably will never have to do it. If you have to do it, it's not the time to learn. Right. And, oh, by the way, you can probably have some fun and uh, and live a little bit better life along the way also. So yeah. those would be the two things I would say in terms of okay. you know, basic, you know, some of those basic life skills that sadly you – know, Many folks just never get to experience uh, by the culture they're growing up in, by the environment they're growing up in, by lack of having a teacher, coach, mentor, you know, who knew and did those right. things. You know, I grew up having to do all those things and not fully appreciating it yeah. until many years later. Trust me, some of that was not what I classified as fun. Fun, yeah. <laughs> you know, planting yeah. and endless weeding and then picking potatoes. You know. By the time that I was 17 and a half years old and going to Morgantown, West Virginia, I was sure I was never going to do that again. <laughs> and now look, here here I am. Full circle. A, a few years yeah. later, you know, we're just about to dig potatoes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, I think it's maybe generational or something, but my grandmother always had a garden, you yeah. know, and she would grow potatoes, tomatoes, everything, you know, and it wasn't a huge garden, but it was a nice size. And, uh, she would work it, till it and, and, and everything. And it's just interesting how, like you said, whether it's, uh, the culture you're brought up in or, or the situation you're put in and, and, uh, the path you choose in your life. But, uh, you know, we don't, we don't really garden as much and it's something that, oh my gosh, my grandmother always do. And that would be, you'd eat that at Thanksgiving, you know, she'd make potatoes and all this. It's interesting, but like I said earlier too, it's, it's a common sense being prepared with the, the roughly two week supply. That's good to know. And then, you know, garden, learn it now. Uh, what, there's a, a famous saying, and I, I might butcher it, but I'm going to try to remember. Uh, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war, I think is what it was. So uh, to, to be prepared for the worst in times of peace yep, yep. yeah i mean that, and, and really that's the flavor of that is exactly what i was talking about for one of those components of you know that preparedness stuff forcing yourself and your organization to be prepared even 
when it's not when when everybody else thinks it's not important. Yeah, because it could come around and, and be very important. Yeah. So now let's uh, continue with Wolf Creek Live Edge. What are your future plans for it? I think I just saw on social media you got uh, maybe a new logo. I think it was or, or something like that recently. We did. Yeah. We worked with uh, a, a teammate, uh, Army teammate of uh, Young Son, who's also in the Pennsylvania National currently okay. in the Pennsylvania National Guard, uh, E six Staff Sergeant in in the Guard. Worked with one of his uh, former military teammates who came up with the Wolf Creek Live Edge logo. Uh, we don't yet have it on shirts or hats or or anything else. We don't have the brand done to be able to stamp it on wood. Oh, but cool. all, yeah. all those things are, are in the works. Are in the works, and we're gonna have. Uh, did, did Lou share with you a challenge coin? Did you know about challenge coins? I know about them. Lou did not. Um, Howard Lloyd had given me my first, and it's uh, the Pennsylvania. It's it's the, the state of PA. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I do have one of those, but yeah. Lou didn't go in depth okay. or anything. Yeah. So well, well, so Howard and Lou obviously from that military uh, domain, you know, challenge coins and things. So we're getting the challenge coin done. So I'll come back with a challenge coin uh, and get you a Wolf oh, Creek awesome. challenge coin uh, when uh, when that happens. Well, the mic's always open in the chair. You can definitely come yeah. back over whenever you'd like. That's phenomenal. So I kind of went over this, but let me ask. Maybe you'll come. Maybe have a different answer. What motivates you? every day i know it's similar to the one we had earlier which uh you know what are you passionate about but sometimes yeah. what motivates people is their passion and what motivates them is, is completely different i think it's it's very much of an overlap for me I'm, obviously you know i'm i'm motivated by going out and making man Comes glitter to, right I, yeah i'm I, it, there are some things that that really don't make sense that i do in this domain for example i'm motivated to figure out how big of a piece I can cut and move myself. What is that current bar at? Do you know? Well, I, I the, the biggest one we could cut was seven and a half feet by nine and a half feet by five inches, right. 1,700 pounds. I couldn't move that one myself. I got it off the truck and stacked it myself, but I couldn't get it on the truck yeah. uh, by myself. Wow. Right now, that, that limit for me, being able to move solo pieces, is about 750 or 800 pounds. Well, I was going to say 600. It's about that. Anything anything bigger than that and I got to I got to get help. Now, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not picking up a 750 pound piece of, you know, piece right. of one it's it, it's awkward. Typically those are 10 pound or 10 foot long, you know, at that weight they're uh, 3 3 and a half inches thick and you know, 36 or 40 inches wide. You know, mm-hmm. Just, you know, the, the logistics of being able to pick that up. So I'm talking about being able you know, move one end, you know, tilt it up, put right. it on a roller. Strategically you know, move yeah. it. You could use it yeah. using physics and geometry. Right. Uh, use, you know, I carry big, heavy crowbars, uh, something called a track bar. It was actually, it's a bar that we used to help change track on tanks. Okay. Much, much heavier than a, than a digging iron, but also much, much stronger. So you use that as a lever. You know, I typically carry a couple, you know, be round pieces of locust about like this, except uh, 20 inches long, okay. generally round. So I can get one end of a 800 pound plank on it. I can then roll it uh, to where it needs to go. That is completely stupid man stuff you know for you know closing in on 60 year old dude but it motivates me man that's awesome motivates me to be able to think i look back at that stack and say okay i rolled the log yeah i milled it i loaded them i offloaded them and i stacked them and now we wait you You do it all and two years later they're going to be 40 percent lighter 
you know, when we go to take them off the sack, because, wow. you know, it'll lose that much water. Yeah, the moisture. It's nothing now. Nothing now that it's dry. Wow. That's, <laughs> I mean, I know that's completely silly, but that, that motivation. Obviously, you know, I, uh, I, I love being able to get up and do this stuff. I love being able to, you know, take care of things around, you know, the old house. And we got a, you know, 1780, 1850, 1870 old farmhouse. Oh, very cool. Uh, that wow. we, you know, it's... It, it has everything that's a joy about an old farmhouse and everything that's not a fair amount of uh, maintenance and upkeep and uh, looking after. And, and now, we, you, know, you know, we have grandchild number one uh, who's coming up on two years old, grandchild number two who's getting ready to make appearance, you know, in a couple of days to a week or two. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have you know, our son, uh, daughter-in-law, and, and one and soon to be second grandchild are in the middle of building a new house and they're going to be moving about 10 miles closer to us and we got our daughter and her boyfriend are just outside of denver Dem- denver colorado not not oh, denver okay. pennsylvania to denver, yeah, yeah, yeah. so getting to you know spend time with wow. them you know figuring out ways that we can uh you know be able to spend more time rather than less you know doing yeah. some of those fun things that's a lot of great things going on for you and, and your family you know that's yeah. phenomenal so now how can our listeners connect with you and follow along on your journey so the best way to do it right now is on facebook like us and follow us on wolf creek live edge so wolf creek live edge uh facebook will take you there we're uh, i don't have a good metric for for how well we're doing on that but we've been able to gradually increase the followership and and i'm sure that you know after this podcast airs you know we're just going to be swamped right, with right. people who are just you'll be overwhelmed uh, yeah that you know we're probably going to you know triple or quadruple our followership and we're going to have a hard time keeping up with inventory right you'll have to maybe bring me on and then train me maybe for I'm, part-time work. i mean you know you're 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 awesome do at doing this stuff and doing marketing and sales yeah. and you already like man glitter Oh, so, yeah, heck yeah, let's do so, it. So, <laughs> yeah, we can we can do that. That would be something. Yeah, and so before we close out, uh, is there anything uh, else you'd like the listeners to know? I greatly appreciate you making the, the trip here from, from your home, and uh, it means a lot that you came in and gave me, oh my gosh, almost an hour and a half of your time, and I really appreciate it. But is there anything else coming up, anything new, anything you want to share with the listeners? Two last things I'd like to be able to say uh, very briefly is, uh, one, we are gradually learning that not everybody is a candidate to buy a 10-foot-long, 40-inch-wide, 3-inch-thick, mm-hmm. super incredibly awesome 800-pound plank. So what you see that I brought with me today, you know, these handful of examples are not only good samples of some of the wood that we're working with, but they're also what we're finding uh, seems to be a little bit more marketable uh, for folks. So we're, we're listening, I think. And although you heard me say earlier, I kind of really just want to see how big right. wood I can right. cut and move mm-hmm. because that's kind of the it's way awesome. I am. Yeah. Uh, the realities are that, uh, you know, small things for charcuterie boards and maybe shelving, uh, decorative things mm-hmm. uh, are a little bit more, uh, a little bit more broadly marketable and saleable. And, you know, price point wise, I mean, that. You know, some of the stuff that, uh, you know, the high end of the stuff is, is well into the four digits, wow, yeah. which which yeah. gets cost prohibitive for a lot of folks. But if we have f- stuff that's, you know, under $100, under $50 for some of these that can be, you know, fairly lightly or, or easily finished, I think that uh, that's something that we're, we're gradually learning. That is not my expertise, not my forte, but I'm, I think that I'm, uh, I'm starting to listen to those things. 
I would agree. I know the charcuterie boards are, are very popular. Yeah. They're very popular. And right, you can't have a nine foot by seven foot charcuterie board. That would be impressive. Though. But you could. But that uh, would be pretty cool. That yeah. could be a post made for, so, for, for social media. Yeah. You know, just put some wine and cheese and some some meats and things. I mean, that's like a you know a, a Game of Thrones charcuterie oh, board. I love Game of Thrones. Yeah, that would be awesome. Do you yeah. watch? Uh, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right. Well, oh, I was man. just thinking, you know, you know, in one of those castles, they could have a seven and a half by nine and a half foot wolf tree fly veg charcuterie. Yes. Oh man, you know, we can pretend we can it's make that from happen. Westeros. You know. And you have to have a bunch of uh, people to carry. You know, probably seven or eight at least yeah. with how heavy it is exactly <laughs> oh that'd be exactly. so cool yeah. uh, no wilbur i appreciate it and i definitely want to have you on you know as you as you grow it and uh one of the things i'm looking to do is get a second mic and maybe you know if your son has time i can have you both come on uh and, and again kind of just share your story and and and, and talk about it but yeah. um was there a second part to that or yeah the yeah. The, the last thing is i just wanted to give a shout out to my 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 angel of a wife who puts up with all of this the man glitter that makes its way into the house on me in my pockets she's probably the best salesperson we have and she won't admit it because she thinks like somebody who is buying the wood not me out doing the grunt work just loving making things she she thinks from the mindset of the consumer uh, and she also might have been one of the primary people who talked me out of naming it generally good wood that's probably but, uh, best you know she's uh, <laughs> yeah yeah you know god bless her for putting up with with all of this and helping with the transition from doing a lot of consulting work and a little bit of milling to doing a little consulting work and a lot of milling at a time that uh, you know, we're trying to, in the grand scheme of things, trying to figure out to turn down the rheostat just a little bit and uh, do a little bit more travel, a little bit more you know, time with extended family and you know, get back around the world a few times. So you know, my, uh, my eternal thanks and blessing to her for putting up with and actually doing a pretty good job of supporting this, whether she wants to admit it or not. <laughs> she sounds like an amazing woman. She is. Awesome. So Wilbur Wolf on the American Grown Podcast in the ColorTech Creative Solutions Studios. Thank you for joining me. Awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, great being here with you. If you want to see more American Grown content, follow along on Facebook and Instagram. Username American Grown Podcast. If you received any value, please share this episode with friends, family, and coworkers. And lastly, subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to be a featured guest on the podcast, please direct message or email Austin at American Grown Pod at gmail.com.